Hi, I'm John Rogers. I created the show Leverage and Rogue Transformers, and you're listening to Genretainment. You're listening to Genretainment. Genretainment. And here are your hosts, Marks and Julie. 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 Hi everyone, this is Jean Entertainment. We're your hosts, Marks. And Julie. And on this episode, we're chatting with writer, director, producer, consultant, basically Jack of All Trades, Heather Hale. Or Jacqueline of All Trades, Heather Hale. <laughs> we talked to her about her book, Story Selling, How to Develop, Market, and Pitch Your Film and TV Projects. We cover a broad range of topics like the difference between uh, pitch packages, decks, proposals, and ripplematics. And the difference between pitching film and TV. She also walks us through the Stranger Things pitch package as an example of how to create your own. Now before we get in this episode's interview, I do want to mention an anthology I had the honor of taking part of. My new science fiction comedy short story. Say that five times fast. <laughs> can be found in the anthology Like Sunshine After Rain. In the show notes, you can find a link to the cover reveal page, which has more information and pre-order links if you're interested book is filled with short stories, poems, and essays. And the proceeds benefit the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, which is a great cause to support. Yeah, for sure. And thanks to Heidi Ruby Miller for editing and organizing the anthology uh, and inviting me to uh, submit a story. And we do plan on having her on the show in the near future. But for now, let's get to our interview with Heather Hale. Hi, Heather. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. I'm happy to be here. We have you on here to talk about your newest book, Story Selling, How to Develop, Market, and Pitch Your Film and TV Projects. But before we get too deep into that, why don't you tell us, tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Oh, well, I am a writer, director, producer, script soup, line producer, consultant, author, teacher, speaker, whatever needs to be done. I wear a lot of hats, which actually is interesting. It used to be kind of a criticism, you know, jack of all trades, master of none. But post-COVID, when you have <laughs> to have a crew of eight, mm-hmm. it's going to be uh, increasingly important. So I... I have about 80 hours of produced credits, most of which are coming from reality TV. I produce the number one life coaching talk show on broadcast television, which is called Lifestyle Magazine. And I've done a Lifetime original movie that Vanessa Williams, Stacey Keach, Gil Bellows, and Diane Carroll were in, and a indie thriller that I wrote, directed, co-wrote, directed, and produced that Ed Asner, Meatloaf... Eddie oh, Furlong, wow. a lot of people in, little thriller, and just a bunch of other stuff. I've done a couple of PBS series that won Emmys, a couple of things that have won Ace Awards, Tellies, and I'm, as a writer, have won Best New Series Pilot, so I've just done a lot of things, and I'm currently actually getting my MFA in directing at the Savannah College of Art and Design, while, interestingly, maybe maybe just to me, uh, simultaneously producing the TV series in Los Angeles. So we've been doing this hybrid model where I'm literally in Savannah, but producing via Zoom and, of course, millions of emails and calls. Mm -hmm. So it's been a surreal time for all of us. Yeah, it has. Um, How did you get started in the industry? Uh, It's funny. I have three different break-in stories, so I'll speed you through them. (laughs) Uh, The the real break-in story, I would say, I was uh, living in Orange County, which is uh, south of Los Angeles, for those who don't know. 
in San Clemente, Huntington Beach, really beautiful areas on the coast that I loved. But there was no real, at that time, entertainment industry business. It was very uh, just real estate and high tech and other things. It wasn't really an entertainment industry hub. So I was looking for any kind of thing to do. And I was a mortgage banker at the time. I owned a mortgage company. So my background is in finance. I was a sort of um, chief financial officer of a three-branch mortgage corporation. And I was trying to figure out how to make the leap. And I saw a job advertised for the only media company that was in Orange County, which was this guy who did mostly infomercials and trade videos and that kind of thing. And he was looking for a receptionist. And I went in and interviewed and he said, what are you doing here? You speak three languages, you have a college degree, you own a mortgage company, why are you interviewing to be my receptionist? And I said, well, interesting you say that. Let me give you my proposal. (laughs) Proposal of what I could do for him. And he stood there, was sitting there and he said, you know what? He goes, let's, let's table this. And He said, I want to have lunch with you. And we went to have lunch at this country club. And he said, I have a different proposal for you. And his proposal was, interestingly, that he was going in to have um, open heart surgery, double bypass. And he was going to be down for the count. And he didn't want anyone to know. Because, you know, people smell weakness. And they your competitors circle like sharks. It's chum in the waters, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And he actually, this is probably too long of a story, but I do think it's interesting When I was in his office, he had this eagle wall of, you know, Yale University, college degree, his law degree, whatever. He had pictures of him with all these celebrities, just every president, celebrity, whatever. So anyway, he admitted over lunch that he had never finished his degree. Hmm. So what he wanted me to do was basically lie for 90 days that, oh, he's, he's in the other room. He's on the, he's on a call. He's in the conference room. He's out playing golf. Just make up. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So that he could go get his heart surgery. And while he was laid up for 90 days, finish his last two classes. So I literally interviewed to be a receptionist and then became literally the president of a production company doing everything soup to nuts on like the cats left the house and the mice were left to play. So I directed, wrote, produced, did everything and literally just called and he had a fax next to his hospital bed. And uh, so nobody knew, but I literally ran the whole show and I directed a bunch of things I didn't get directing credit for, wrote a ton of stuff. I did. He got credit for everything. So it wasn't quite a great deal for me, <laughs> but, it, but it was because I was thrown into the deep end. And then there's a couple other uh, break-in stories if you're interested, but that's maybe a good one for our blog, our podcast. Here. <laughs> I like that. You know, uh, receptionists have to lie like that all the time. I used to be oh, one. <laughs> it was. I just started having fun with it because I I normally never lie. Like, ask anyone you know who knows me. Yeah, I'm bad I, at it, but I learned how to do that over the phone. <laughs> yeah, I like. I will have insomnia and IBS. So I just can't do it. I cannot lie at all. But my friends know when they ask me and I'm like, and I, I do the diversion response or I answer around it, they know that I'm avoiding lying. But with him, because it was my job and I wasn't lying for anything, it was, it was a, you know, it was an agreed upon lie. So I just made up all sorts of stuff. It was a lot of fun. (laughs) Yeah, I imagine. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I got to like direct a bunch of things. One thing I did was in English and Spanish, and we did like 12 pages in one day for the uh, California Small Claims Court. And I literally 
cast an entire bilingual cast so that I would shoot the scene in English and then everybody stayed in their places. We shot it in Spanish and just boom, 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 boom. So we did was it either nine or 12 pages in two languages in one day. Oh my wow. goodness. That's a Isn't that lot. Crazy? Yeah. So one of the main things we have you on here today to talk about is something that not everybody knows about. It's like pitch packages. Right. Mm-hmm. I think people have heard different versions of this. So can you tell us a little bit at first about like the differences between a pitch package versus a deck, a proposal? Yeah, it, it's interesting because when I started writing the book, so I, I've written two books. Mm-hmm. It, they're both books I wrote because they weren't out there, mm-hmm. you know, and they were the books I needed. And so I just started researching them and I realized, wow, this, this there's really a hole in the market for this. And it's interesting. So since I've written uh, story selling, which I think is still holds and everything that is in there, I'm very proud of that. And it gets all five star reviews on Amazon and people have written me saying it's changed their life. So I'm very proud of it. That said, the industry changes so fast how technology evolves and storytelling and story selling evolves. So the minute you think you've got it nailed, it's changed and there's a new software. There's a new look at look at all the people who would have given you advice on how to pitch a year ago, who would have said nobody takes pitches over video. Like, yeah. oh my God, welcome to COVID Zoom world, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the, the industry keeps changing and evolving, as does the global economics. But pitch decks, I typically think of a pitch deck as a PowerPoint or a deck of cards. It's a, it's a collection of slides, arresting images, keyframes, uh, key art, it's boom, boom, boom. Here's my locations, here's my cast. And, and it's something that you could give as a, almost like a, a magazine, a PDF that would be emailed for people to flip through and browse or a website, or it is your PowerPoint or your keynote that you would use to augment a verbal presentation or a Zoom presentation, or you're pitching on stage 32 or whatever. Right. To me, a proposal is more like how you're proposing to the location that you're going to do a joint venture with, how you would utilize their location and how you would embed marketing for their, for the city, for the, you know, miniature golf park, whatever it is that you're trying to get someone to participate with you. Or I like, um, I have a project with Steve Celine of the Celine Mustangs. Here's how we've integrated his marketing. Here's how we would use him at the car shows. So it's a proposal. So people, it's like a mini business plan that is sort of top note. So that's kind of the difference between a pitch deck and a proposal. And then a pitch package might be somewhere in between sort of a hybrid. And then I think, you know, just three, four years ago, maybe longer, a ripomatic. I don't know if you know what a ripomatic. Do you know what a ripomatic is? Have you ever heard of that? Think, isn't that where you rip? Is that where yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Group video from other stuff to show. Is that right? Totally. Yeah. So every one of these tools, and I'll explain it more in a second, but every one of these tools is a way for you to demonstrate to whoever your audience is what your vision is and how you would execute it. So for example, if you're a director doing a lookbook, you might be collecting images from other movies or or fine art, architecture, cast. You're trying to show, pull together pieces that are visual references that represent how what your sensibility is that you would bring to the project. As a writer, you might be showing this is the uh, coal mining town in Kentucky that we're setting this in, or this is the gold rush town. Like 
this is the time and place and the era and the sensibility. And these are the kinds of, this is the kind of talent we think we would attach. Maybe it's your wish list. Sometimes, you know, in a business plan, you might be showing here are our, sh our short list for five actors and here's their IMDb ranking and here's their V score off Variety Insight. And here's why we think they're so bankable or what their marquee value is. But you don't want that in a business plan if you presented them as attached and they weren't that you could be in a libelous situation. Yeah. However, however, let's say you want uh, Vincent D'Onofrio or, or Matthew McConaughey or whoever it is. You could actually just use an image of them without saying they're attached, without even putting their name because their, their face is recognizable. And you're like, oh, I know that guy, especially if it's a high profile character actor who you might not know their name. You're not representing that they're attached. You're saying this is the feel of this kind of person. So that's one way of doing it. As an example, I have a project that's a thriller that's very much kind of a conspiracy theory, privacy, all the stuff that we have going on in the world today. And I used actually an image of Edward Snowden, mm -hmm. who's not an actor. Right. But when you see his face, you go, oh, I know that guy. But what it conjures is being on the run in Hong Kong with drones try, like trying to find him and secrecy and is is he a mole is he a, is he a hero is he a spy like is he is he betraying the country is he doing what's right for the country and those are all the images and themes that are in my project so you're just trying to tap into the zeitgeist of what that project's trying to sell or or trying to present so what you might present to auto manufacturer who you're trying to get, like we have the project we're trying to get Dodge to let us use their test tracks to shoot on uh, as a joint venture. That's going to be a very different proposal than what you would pitch to the uh, love interest who might not be the protagonist, which might be different than the project, what you would pitch to the agent of the hero or the protagonist. Now, these packages and this material might be 90% identical. It just has the slight, like if you're pitching to uh, Ed Harris to play the bad guy, of course, he's the hero, right, of his story. So you're going to present it from that, just just tweaking it slightly so that it, it's he doesn't have to go four pages down to find out the role he's playing, that he really gets it. So pitch packages, proposals, pitch decks, ripomatics, feel reels, Sizzle reels, trailer, like all these things, they're all just different ways of getting off the screenplay or off your manuscript or off your self-published book, whatever the literary asset is that you have that you're trying to market, monetize, get someone to option, someone to develop, someone to buy, whatever the process is, attach yourself to direct, get someone to attach if you're the producer, all these different pieces of the puzzle, it's just the marketing materials and they could be printed out beautiful four color glossy they could be a website they could be a video it's all the same stuff pitching it so it's, it basically comes down to the the number one top rule in communications which is know your audience so oh. you have to tailor it to each one of them yeah yeah and only and it's it sounds like a lot of work and it is but it's not, it's, it's about 90% the same. It's not just know your audience. It's, I also think of journalism, who, what, where, when, why, mm -hmm. like yeah. why you, why them, why now, what is the point of entry? What's the angle of opportunity? And then make sure you're pitching it to them. So, you know, your synopsis might be the same. Your logline might be the same. Your key art might be the same. 
a lot of it's the same, but it's just your angle. And it might only be the top uh, paragraph of your query letter or the first sentence of your email or the first sentence of your elevator pitch. And then the rest is very similar. Yeah. It's very cool. Yeah, I know whenever I was in film school, you know, I had to make lookbooks. Yeah, projects. I remember that. So I love that. But they never talked about pitch packages. No, they did not. Which <laughs> yeah. in film school would have been helpful. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I'll tell you, I'm learning, um, yeah, I'm getting my MFA, so I'm learning Avid and all these all the technical side of I've I'm come from the writing producing background, so I'm very good with story and I'm very good with the business side. And I'm trying to be more visual as a director and really try to capture that. So one of the things I'm learning in addition to editing, which has been fascinating and so good for your writing, uh, is storyboarding. And while I'm mm -hmm. fascinated in learning how to storyboard and block and, you know, do all the different things, the producer hat is always on thinking, oh, I'm going to use these three keyframes and here's my pitch deck. Like right there, I know what my arresting image is. I know how I'm going to tell my metaphor and the themes. And here's the beginning, middle, and end. And I've grabbed. Uh, so let's talk real quick about the ripomatic. When you so so this is really important. So I'm just running on a roll here. So forgive me. No, go for it. Um, when you have a project, what no matter what it is, whether it's a graphic novel. Um, a story ripped from the headlines that you've optioned the rights to some journalist's article. It's your own self-published book. It is a true life story, your original screenplay, whatever it is, you are looking for ways to sell that. And you're looking for what is this like? So for example, if you're adapting a graphic novel or you're adapting a book or, or it's an original screenplay, Let's say you have what we call um, comparable comps. So forgive me, but the mortgage banker and me, if you ever have bought a house, when you buy a house, uh, let's say you're buying, I, I just bought a 100-year-old house in Savannah, an old Victorian. So when, when they do comparable, uh, to determine its fair market value, they don't compare my 100-year-old house to an eight-unit apartment building. They don't compare my 100-year-old house to a duplex. Right. They try to find houses about the size of my house, about the age of my house, if they can, and hopefully within a, a reasonable vicinity of this house. That's the same thing you're doing with comps. If you're doing big-budget sci-fi movie, you don't use you know, a Disney blockbuster animated feature that's about fish that's not a comparable market it's not the same demographic psychographics so if you're looking for you have a 30 million dollar sci-fi what are the other 30 million dollar sci-fis or 50 million or 10 million that were done in the last five years and maybe you can't find any that are close enough but you try and then those are what we would call marketing comps and then you might have creative comps that are that's 20 years old, but it still has the feel of alien or it still has the feel of some classic, iconic, you know, really significant breadcrumbs in the provenance of your genre. Mm -hmm. So you're looking at those and that helps you to assess not just how did you look at their key art? How did they market that? 
you know, a lot of thrillers will always have some blood on the poster or a gun in the poster or romance. There's two people kissing. You know, it's pretty becomes very obvious. If you walk down market floors at the American Film Market or at NatPe, you're going to see these this key art that's, you know what the image is. You know, if it's brightly saturated colors it's and someone's laughing, it's probably a comedy. And I will tell you, Netflix does stuff with their algorithms that's fascinating, which we can talk about. But again, it's all, all marketing. So you look at your comps. In the book, I give all these exercises at the end of each. I literally, as if I'm teaching a class. So at the end of each chapter are some exercises, some honeydews, if you want to do them. And on my website, I have all these workshop uh, worksheets that you can do. But I encourage people to put your comps in a spreadsheet. Who was what? What was the year? What was the budget? Who was the director? What? Who were the stars? And you don't necessarily have to know who all the stars were, but are they A-listers? Are they D-listers? Are they social influencers? Are they TV stars that are getting their first movie break? Which again has all changed now because of COVID, because everybody's on streaming. <laughs> but What's interesting is you look at that, not only does it help you figure out how to market it, because you can look at the log lines, you can look at the keywords, you can look at some of the, how they're marketing it, you can look at Rotten Tomatoes and some other sites to see how they're being reviewed and what was the weaknesses, do you have those, are they poking holes in your plot too, that some of the issues that might be cliche or stereotypical but the other thing that that comp list does for you is you can reverse engineer your prospects mm -hmm. because it tells you who your possible buyers are. It tells you who's in that space. It tells you who are the networks, the cable channels, the who are the uh, financiers. It's exactly, there's your short list for your hit list. And it can, be, it can be very valuable. And if you find the same director on nine of them, that's who you might want to be pitching to. Now... And I've covered a lot of stuff, but is there any difference between pitching between film and television? I mean, and uh, has that changed now? Yes, and yes, and yes. <laughs> so I would say that in the old days, like 10 years ago, <laughs> that uh, it used to be. So actually, this is interesting. So How to Work the Film and TV Markets is my other book. And when that went to its first round of readers, there were 12 anonymous readers. I don't know who any of them were, but 11 of them, I, they shared the feedback with me. The publisher, Focal Press, shared the um, feedback with me. 11 of them thought it was brilliant. And one of them said that I didn't understand the market because film and television were so different. Mm. Because my argument was they were merging and they were converging. And this person, male or female, who very well may understand the industry completely then, right. wasn't seeing what, and I was like, no, because they're changing. So 10 years ago, I would have said that you had big budget film directors who were crossing over to TV and they were bringing their work methods and their models and their teams with them who had a shorthand that was different. And the same thing was happening with TV. They were uh, a big showrunner might be getting an opportunity to go produce some big budget feature. Now, because of COVID and a variety of other economic issues, piracy, theatrical issues beyond the scope of this podcast, so much is landing on streaming. And, you know, there's a joke that Disney is trying to become Netflix before Netflix becomes Disney, you know, and that's kind of what's happening is, are you a content creator? Are you a distribution platform? And it goes back to 
the paramount decree of whether a studio could own a theater. And it's very convoluted issues here. But in terms of content creators who are writing and pitching content, the key difference between a feature film and a TV series is in the word series. It's serialized. So if you have a project where it's clearly got a beginning, middle, and end, and your character goes through some sort of a transformational arc, and we know when the end is, that is probably best served as a feature film. However, nowadays, there everybody's trying to fragment it up into a limited series because it takes just as much time, effort, and mostly money to raise awareness and attract eyeballs to one 90-minute, two-hour piece of content as it does to 10 hours. And if they can get your butt in the seat for two or four hours, odds are you're going to watch the rest of the 10 hours and probably watch the surrounding content. So it used to be that they were looking for stuff that would attract you to their cable channel to pay for a subscription, right? Which is still the same with Netflix, but we're not in linear television where you watch at eight o'clock and you just happen to be too lazy to get up. So you watch what comes on at <laughs> yeah. nine or 10. Mm -hmm. That's not what's happening with linear, with linear streaming. So people are watching on their phones, iPads, computers. And the thing that is very fascinating to me is you can have people in third world countries who don't have access to running water or a bathroom, but they have a smartphone, right? Right. They don't have the infrastructure to have a landline or phone, but they have satellite iPads so that they literally, that is their connection to the outside world. So you can have someone who literally doesn't have shoes, but is getting agricultural information on their iPad of how to have their crops do better. So what's happening is, especially in the United States, the UK and Europe, especially, is Netflix is completely saturated. You probably don't know anybody who doesn't have at least Netflix, Amazon or broadcast television or some cable channel. Like everybody's got, maybe they're watching Hulu, maybe they're watching whatever, but they have access to some source of content. So Netflix is trying to reach into all of these other countries. I mean, they're not in China. It's the only one. They're, they're not in China, Syria, or Crimea. And that's about it. They're in like 190 out of 192 countries. So, And in the countries where they're trying to reach fuller saturation, you hear all this politically correct effort for diversity, which is really not what it is. It's trying to give access to other points of view and other worldviews and other sets of experiences, which are really precious and important and need to be honored and told. But they are also the flip side of that is trying to reach other markets for people of color in other countries that speak other languages that have a very different experience than Western, than the Western world. So when you watch a Netflix movie or Amazon, especially Netflix though, there will be five minutes of credits of all the other languages, right? Yeah. right? You mm -hmm. just sit there and it's country after country after country. And we've done that. We're like, how many are there? <laughs> yeah, because in many cases they're dubbing it in, which is why animation is so popular because they can dub it in all the native languages and not have to worry about it looking dubbed because it was animated. Right. So there's just, there's a lot of things happening in our world right now that are 
you know, we used to call it the fragmentation of the dial and millennials and Gen Y are like, what, what dial? Yeah. Right. <laughs> so I, clouds have a, hands. What? Yeah. <laughs> it's a super exciting time to be a content creator and it's scary because it, the landscape is shifting under your feet. And so, and nobody knows where, you know, it's like a carnival game. Nobody knows where the Where's, ball's going to land. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's very true. Well, we should mention also with, with the pitch package that you did provide this example one that's out there. And we can put that in our show notes because I'm sure people want to see what a pitch yeah. package looks like for Stranger Things. Could you just cover real quick like a few things in the Stranger Things package that you thought they did really an excellent job at that people should yeah, look at? Yeah, I will for sure. And I think you'll put in your links. So for story selling, so I'm not... I mean, I'm happy to pitch the two books, but I, you know, I make, I make like 10 cents or a dollar. It's not a big deal to me, but I really seriously, honestly wrote them because they were all the stuff nobody I knew knew, nobody I knew understood and nobody could break down and explain. And so especially story selling, which is the Michael Easy book, I poured my heart and soul into that book. And it was a labor of love for storytellers. So in that book, I realized, so I, I learned a lot about media and that is that, and I am going to get to answer your question, I promise. There's a point to this madness. I realized that whatever I put in there, the minute you write a book, especially nonfiction, it's outdated before it even gets published. That's how fast our world is changing. So I tried to make that book as evergreen and universal so that the that the principles would hold, like no matter what happens and changes, this is the spine of what matters. And I do believe I achieved that. But to augment it, I created this Dropbox where I literally put like every pitch package I could find, every screenplay I could find, every, all the COVID, like I'm a certified COVID compliance officer just so I can do budgets and schedules that I do as a line producer. So I put all the COVID stuff that I've been collecting. So that is free to everybody. So you'll put that on that link. You can just go in and download it. It's just free to whoever could possibly need it. So in there is tons and tons of pitch decks. And the Stranger Things is a particularly good one, I think, for a variety of reasons. One is that you absolutely have this sense that it's kind of like this love letter to 1980s Spielberg movies. You know, it feel it has that old feeling, which I hate to say old because I'm not going to say how old I am, but let's just say I'm familiar with the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so anyway, okay, so I'm just going to pull it up right now. So it's got this kind of, it has a, a, a resting image, which is a really lovely thing. It's this bike turned over on its side. And you can, uh, uh, whoever's listening can listen to this again if you want and walk through it while we go through it. But I'll just explain for those who are just auditory. So, uh, it, you know, it's an epic tale of sci-fi horror. So then they have this little introduction, which is like um, technically four paragraphs, but it's really like five or six sentences. Super simple, explains what they are. It's an eight-hour sci-fi horror epic where it's set, uh, that it's, you know, an, kind of an homage to Spielberg and Stephen King. It's really lovely. They've really captured the sense. And in capturing the sense, they're also hinting at who their demographics are, right? It's kind of uh, built into that. So then they've used images. So they have an image from 
E.T. with him with the flashlight looking at the shed with all the glowing light. So that gives you this sense, and it's in moonlight. So it gives you the sense of not just Spielberg with also the kind of the children of the corn, corn stalks behind there. It's creepy. It's scary. But it's not, at least in this moment, not gruesome. It's it's innocent. It's this innocent, nostalgic, melancholy sci-fi horror. And so that's where we talk about like a ripomatic. Uh, ripomatic is literally the word is coming from like ripping off a DVD. Not you're not stealing it. You're not doing anything illegal. If you're just only using it to, it's literally like if you cut pictures out of a magazine and taped them like to a, a poster board. Kind of thing. Yeah, and walked into a office to show that that collection. You're not doing anything illegal. You're just showing it. So ad agencies do that all the time. So that's what they've done is they've grabbed uh, probably a production still. There's a website called Shot Deck that's fantastic that has all of So you could literally put in your different comps and it will pull up all the movies. You can put in your aspect ratio. You can put in, oh, I want a worm's eye view. I want an aerial shot. I want an over-the-shoulder shot. All the different kinds of things you could be looking for. They have it with color schemes. It's really lovely. Okay. So then the next thing is this, the Montauk Project Conspiracy. So here, which really important for sci-fi is world building. Like what is the time and place? Are we 200 years in the future, 2,000 years in the future? Are, is this a period piece? What are the rules of this universe? What are the, what are the kinds of characters that populate it? So they're talking about 1942, World War II. So they're establishing the time and place kind of, kind of uh, as if it were Peter Benchley's Amity and Jaws. So it's kind of this, uh, they're just trying to give you the sense of place and the timing and what's going on in the world around them. And so then again, they have more images. Uh, then here they have an image from the uh, Montauk, Long Island, an Air Force base that's dilapidated, which is, I believe this is actually there. So they're actually using a physical location that they, I think, shot on. Don't quote me on that. I don't know for sure. That they're using. So they're showing you, like, I have a project, Hardcastle, about these coal mines in Kentucky. So I would take t- period pieces of that to intersperse in with images from movies, right? So you're kind of mixing it to show that. So then they give the story. So this is, let's say about, yeah, about a page. And it is uh, one, two, three, four, five, give or take five paragraphs, just giving you the story. Again, another image, this one from Close Encounters. So they're staying in the space. Again, if we did that spreadsheet of comps, these are sci-fi Spielberg, 1980s, late 1970s, so this 1977, uh, to give, give you this sense. Again, you got this really uh, surreal, creepy night sky and a girl running out, uh, isolated out in the middle of this rural area. So then they talk about the structure, Act 1, Act 2, Act 3. And what they're saying here, because this, of course, could have been a feature film, of course. It could have been three movies with a, as a trilogy. But here they're showing Act 1 is Episodes 1 through 3. Act 2 is Episodes 4 through 6. Act 3, Episodes 7 and 8. So they're giving you this eight-episode arc, and they're showing you in the big picture the, the overarching arc of the beginning, middle, and end the three acts. And of course, each of your episodes have to have their own beginning, middle, and end. So the difference, again, back to your question, Julie, about the difference between a feature film and series, 
is, you know, there are a lot of people who do the 10 minute movie method. There's all these different styles and structures, mm -hmm. but in a series, the implication is that they could get up at the half hour mark or they could get up at the hour mark where people are not likely going to do that in a cinematic experience. They're going to sit through it usually. So you need to make sure that you have a cliffhanger before a commercial break or you have a cliffhanger at the end of each episode, which is what causes this binge watching. So we all sit there and I mean, I'm sure you've done it where you're like, let's just watch one more. Okay, oh, just oh, one. Oh, we can't stop there. We've got to watch one more. <laughs> yeah, we'll go to bed after. Okay, I, my boyfriend and I have done that a lot. How many are left? Oh, there's just two left. Let's. Just, I don't have do to be it. up early. Yeah, yeah. We, can make it. we can make it. I've, I've, at times I've had him, I've made him start watching the next episode and I'm like, we'll stop it halfway through so there won't be a, this big cliffhanger so I can go to bed. Okay. You know? Yeah. My, my boyfriend is so funny. We, I do, I'm up in my office working and he'll come up and he'll say, okay, are you ready for lunch? Do you got 22 minutes or 44? Like, yeah. Which, which, which size episode do you have for lunch? Yeah. Are we watching a sitcom or are we watching a one hour drama? And then I do the same thing. Like I'll, we'll watch something and I, I have to get back to a meeting or a zoom call or I need to go to bed, whatever it is. And we'll like, let, okay, at the next commercial break, like you just, you're trying to time it, like, because you know the exciting climax is coming, but right. let's stop. At, yeah. And Before so we totally that. Exactly. And then we'll come back to it. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. So the next thing that is in this pitch package for Stranger Things on page nine, he, the, they talk about tone and style. So they're talking about the cinema, cinematography, soundtrack, the technology, it's just the feel of the period. And then another image, this is again, Poltergeist, 1982 Spielberg. Again, it's got that stormy sky and a, you know, a whatever they call that wood panel old station wagon oh, Woody. in a sub in a subdivision. Yeah. Woody. So in a subdivision. So you've got again, time period place feeling and the, and the pitch deck itself has this image of looking like it's uh, wrinkled and like been folded up in the back of some kid's pocket while he biked to school or something. Mm -hmm. And then they talk about the horror and the kind of horror. So horror and comedy it's interesting. Uh, Neil Hicks was one of my professors at UCLA, and he had this fantastic circle of genres. And horror and comedy are right next to each other, which you would not think of, but they're both about the gap between the the expectation and the shock. Mm -hmm. So it's either expectation and the twist, and that's the joke, or it's the expectation and the shock, and that's what's scary. So it's scary and funny are a lot closer than people realize. Oh yeah. So. So and horror can be, you know, dark, gross, uh, slasher. It can be um, psychological, you know, Silence of the Lamb, uh, The Believers. This is a lot of different kinds of horror. So this is talking about it's supernatural horror, but totally rooted in science. So they're talking about dark matter, black holes, wormholes, alternate universe, string theory, and then they're gra grounding their horror in reality, which for me is always the scariest yes. kind. Mm -hmm. oh. So, and then they do, but they do have supernatural entities. So that's, so they're very clearly telling you what the rules of this universe are. And then they're talking about how it'll be obscured, hidden in shadows, tucked away off screen, which the producer is thinking of CGI, special effects. What's this thing going to cost me? So, um, and then they're talking about, the horror of humanity, you know, abuse, divorce, violence, cruelty, substance abuse, depression, death. So 
all the darkness of the human condition is colliding or it's a metaphor for this, the underworld coming up, bubbling up. So then there's this image of Clive Barker, Hellraiser. So again, the comps, then they, then they do an interesting thing. So a lot of pitch packages, proposals, pitch decks, whatever you want to call them, whether it's on video or print or website, they'll go through character breakdowns. And I think it's important for writers, especially who might not have been through the whole process soup to nuts to realize the difference between what a character breakdown is versus a cast breakdown, which, uh, you know, when you're casting and auditioning or managers and agents and reps are looking for who's the right role for this or the director is thinking of that, that might be a little different because that's how that person shows up in the room and on the screen versus what a writer might be thinking about the backstory, what's driving them interior, what's driving their interior monologue, the stuff that's going on. So they're both equally important but what we can show in a thumbnail in a moment is going to be who these people are so sometimes you'll have a picture of an actor who is representative of that type like Frances McDormand is a she conjures all sorts of things and she fits so many she's just an amazing actress and she's a better pick for things like this than Meryl Streep because when people see Meryl Streep they're like well she's like can you get any more A-list and how are we ever going to afford her so you know if, if Meryl Streep wants to do your movie you're golden but if you're trying to show a type so that so there's kind of like the difference between a star and or a diva and an actor or a character actor so how are they showing up well what stranger things did which i think is quite interesting and very effective is they kind of talked about the the generations. Mm-hmm. So they talk about the kids, and then they talk about the teenagers, and then they talk about the parents. So right. they talk about the 12-year-old kids, and that little... the So they have some agency and subplots going that are relevant and vicarious to each demographic that might be watching it, which is, I think, part of the reason it was such a four-quadrant success. So each of the kids are in their, you know, 12, all the, the little buddy a group of kids. And, and it's kind of like Stand By Me, Rob Reiner's 1986, again, mm-hmm. the 80s. So they use an example of that when they're talking about the kids. They're not giving you pictures of actors that could actually play those roles. They're actually just showing you an image of a pack of kids that are buddies that are kind of timeless, that many of us remember. And then they talk about the one outsider, which is this fantastic character who we're not quite sure, but she's separate from the others because she has uh, supernatural abilities from a genetic mutation. And that's part of the sort of the intersection between the science and the supernatural, sort of the X-Men angle that it was some biotechnic stuff. And then they reference uh, Firestarter, you know, uh, Drew uh, Drew Barrymore from that, again, 1980s, sci-fi horror type project then they go through the teenagers and they we have a love story there or a love triangle actually if I remember right Mm -hmm. and then they're using Wes Craven's 1980s again and then they go through the adults and we have a love interest there and we have mother son relationships there so there's a lot of uh we could talk about character diamonds and those relationships but that's a very interesting but anyway so they talk about Jaws So they're using all of these different things. And then they pitch the franchise potential, which, of course, it got past its one season. I think it did four. How many seasons do you know? 
Um, the new one's going to be coming out. That'll be fourth, won't it? Four. I think they're on yes. their fourth. Yeah. So at this point, when they're pitching it, they were pretty much probably, I don't know, uh, had at least the first season worked out. And nobody knows. Nobody knows if it's going to take off or not. You hope it will. So maybe they're talking. But so here they're pitching that it was designed as a standalone eight-hour tale, but that it could continue into different installments. And then they give hypothetical sequels of what could happen in the same time. Summer of 1990, 10 years later. And- exactly. So they're giving – because suppose you lose your stars. Okay, well, we could change our cast and we can American – you know, you could do some other things with it. That would be very so- it. Yeah, story and I think it's interesting. It looks like they didn't intend for it to originally be set in Indiana. Mm-hmm. They it was going to be in Long Island, I think. Yep. Uh huh. So yep. that that's kind of interesting. But I like the idea. You know, you set it kind of in the middle of the country, and a lot of people don't know that much about the area, so it could be anywhere, really, right? Yeah, and I think having kind of done worn a lot of the hats and done the whole spectrum. It is interesting, you know, as a writer, we can get so precious that it's got to be Long Island. It's got to be Indiana. It's got to have rose colored wallpaper. Like we just like I had a screenwriter once who wrote what the room smelled like. (laughs) Like, okay, how do I show that on the screen? (laughs) Like we don't know that, but it smells. okay. great. It smells of patchouli. We can show an incense being lit. But, I, you know, it's not a scratch and sniff screen yet. (laughs) So. Someday, so, someday. Yeah. <laughs> and I think every every writer should have to break down a schedule. And the minute you break down a schedule, you will start to have well-behaving slug lines, let me tell you. <laughs> because for I don't mean want to be anal, and it's just so much freaking work. But then you start to realize that all that matters is basement. That's what all the department heads need to know, that this is the basement, right? Because there's a difference between a location and there's a difference between a location and a set, Right. Because you might have a house that is actually five different sets because the living room is the Smith's living room, but the kitchen is the Jones's kitchen. And they're not supposed to look like the same place, but we don't want to move our crew. So right. we're doing like, you know, mm-hmm. but as a writer, all that matters is like, where, what is this set? And so it, it's conversely important and not important. So the world, the sensibility, what it feels like, and same thing with cast who is this person? What, how do they show up? And like, are they insecure? Are they brazen? Are they audacious is way more important than if they have blue eyes or six foot two. Cause you know, if a short famous actor wants to do it, you're probably going to be thrilled. Mm-hmm. You know, it's who they, who that character is that they emanate on screen. And that's the same thing with your locations. What's the sense and feeling? Because we may want an old Victorian, but we may end up with some real modern, different kind of house. And that's going to have to work, you know, unless it ruins your story. But so I noticed in this particular pitch package, they pretty much covered the basics of the whole season. Would you always suggest that? Or have you had like a traditional like 20 plus episode season? Would you just like hit the highlights? Highlights or uh, yeah, I think it depends on what you're pitching. So so I used to be the vice president of programming for the National Association of Television Program Executives. And I used to help everybody under the sun behind the scenes pitch every conceivable kind of content from doing sizzle reels, doing pitch packages, verbal. Like I've done more pitch fests than anyone should ever. I mean, I just I dream of pitch fests. I've just <laughs> been to a million of 
like literally pitch fests where Disney made you notarize your release before mm. pitching for five minutes to them, like legit pitch fests. Mm. And if you're pitching a procedural, so something, so, so an, an ER room, a law, a, co a court of law, police department, fire department, EMTs, those worlds where cases mm -hmm. come barreling in through the revolving doors or come flying in with a siren or the gavel pounding down, those are, so they could be, they could be uh, episodic or serial. So the serial is that the, we have this love story that goes for a whole season or four years or whatever, but the case is the person going to live or die? Is the person going to be accused and put away for life? Are they going to get away with rape? Whatever the case is, is the fire, the wildfire going to ruin the trailer with the horses? Whatever the case is, that's the procedural. So you see a lot of hybrids. So you might just give three or four sample cases or like The Good Doctor, which is fan, a fantastic series. You might say he can visualize in his mind's eye everything from, and then you give two or three top note examples of the kinds of things he's going to be able to visualize and how we're going to see that um, before his eyes in um, VFX or however they're doing it. And we get a sense of that. You may tell the whole five-year arc in hopes of hitting the 100-episode you know, golden lottery ticket, which is where everybody becomes a millionaire because you can be syndicated as a strip show. They may say... Um, you know, in the first season, she falls in love with him, but he's betrayed by her and then the brother, blah, blah, blah. In the second season, she finds out that she's his long lost whatever. So you're maybe just hitting top notes, literally like skipping a rock across the river of this. These are the types of things that are going to happen in this season or we're going to pull from science these types of issues or we have um, like I have an Egyptian Game of Thrones. So are we going to have the here's the religious group vying for the throne here's the military group vying for the throne here's the inbred royal family and how they're trying so here's all the people jockeying on the chessboard i don't have to tell you beat 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 play 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 i'm just telling you in broad strokes like they did here's the kids here's the teens here's the adults mm -hmm. here's the military here's the science here's the whatever mm -hmm. so if you were doing a reality show, you might say, uh, we're going to hit all the blue zones and we're going to talk about aging, diet, nutrition. You know, you're going to give the topics or the themes. So it just sort of depends on what you're pitching. If you have a, a novel you've written, you might say, you know, I have a 340-page novel and I think I can do this in 10 30 episodes, whatever, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And in the first, like they did in the first three episodes, we're going to do this. So you break it down. So here's an example. I have a project called the undetected that was originally a feature film. And then we had an opportunity to pitch it to someone and they were like, no, uh, I need, I need it to be 10 episodes. Huh. So I had to go back to the drawing table because not because it meant needed to be a feature film, but because they could sell 10 episodes. Right. So I went back and broke down my feature film into what would that be? And then I, I kind of talked about what season two would be, which isn't written. 
I don't know what season two is going to be, but I gave an idea just like they did hypothetically. And they, they're in, I think they're in their fourth season. So it, it just has to be logical that this, this is where we could go with this. Yeah. It still gives the, the writing room something to do. And the producers and everyone who wants to develop, like right. here's an example. I'll probably say her name wrong. Mayam Bialik. Is that right? Oh, From yeah. uh-huh. Big Bang. Okay. So she was in a TV show way before Big Bang and way before My Name is Cat or whatever the new one she's doing. It's really cute. Cat, something like that. I am yeah, my Cat. Name is, I think My Name is Cat. Kate. My Name is Cat. Yeah, My Name is Cat. And she was the she was Sheldon's girlfriend in Big Bang Theory. But long before that, awesome. she was in Blossom. And she's a fantastic actress. She's fantastic. But she was the title character of that TV series, but Joey Lawrence stole the show because right. he was this teen heartthrob Whoa. so yeah yeah <laughs> so even though she was the star and the title character joey lawrence got a ton of attention and she's super smart she like went and got her phd like she did not suffer and she's clearly had a great career and she like a but neurobiologist or something she's like amazing yeah. but the point I'm making is you never know who the audience is going to respond to and relate to. So even though you might've said, we're going to follow Blossom getting her period, maybe nobody cared because they wanted to see Joey lift weights. Right. right? So you don't always it reminds know. reminds me of Urkel or Fonzie. Yeah. On the family that... matters, you know, with Urkel, you know, yep. became, and then Fonzie on happy days, the fun. Yep. He was supposed to be this, very, very, almost not even secondary, episode. like third character. Yeah. He occasionally shows up, and then what happens? He gets top billing later. You know, right? And then he he wasn't allowed to be wearing his leather jacket unless he was with his motorcycle. So, so they, they always, always had, had the motorcycle because they were afraid exactly. he'd look like a hood. You know? Exactly. So they always had him sitting on his motorcycle, and, and like you know, he r- push his motorcycle into the yep. the. The, the, the restaurant, does, you know, it's like yeah. as people do, right? Because that way he could be leaning right. against his motorcycle indoors. Exactly. <laughs> well, and you think of like um, even Last Man Standing, Tim Allen's show right now. So one of the daughters, the youngest daughter, who's like his favorite, went off to the military because she's probably doing other movies. Good for her. But then another one, the blonde, they just like switched her with a different actress. And they made one like joke about it. You look different if you lost weight. And then they just kept going. Yeah. Like, well, the oldest know. daughter, yeah, was they had a different actress for the oldest daughter in the first season. And mm-hmm. then the father of her child, they switched actors from the first season to the second season as well. Yep. And yep. then they had the same middle daughter all throughout until it came back from cancellation. And yep. so then they went, she went from this one actress with black hair to a, a blonde. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, they just, they've had such a high turnover rate with yeah. their actors. And you have no idea is one of your actresses going to get pregnant. Is someone, God forbid, going to die? Is someone going to go into rehab? Is someone going to be the breakout star and leave ER and go be George Clooney as a movie star? You right. never know. Or some high profile people who thought they could leave the TV show and flopped. Yeah. He didn't make the leap. So as a writer, producer, content creator, we don't always, nobody controls any of that. Nobody controls any of that. So you just have to make sure that your series has legs, that it can run in any direction, and it has this spine that will hold it together. So your job is to create these amazing characters. Like I I often think of um, Frasier and Niles, right? Mm -hmm. 
you know, you throw out, like I, I wrote a spec, Frasier, and Frasier, Niles does stand up. So you already, right? You already know. You already know. You just know because those characters are so freaking good, right? Yeah. I also did a Big Bang spec where, oh, I should know. What's the blonde's name? Penny. 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 So I'm in Mensa. Uh, Penny tests into Mensa. Because <laughs> there's like 11 different kinds of intelligence and she's socially and emotionally intelligent. Right. She's actually these... not dumb, which is she I, is brilliant. She's I love so... how yeah they've they've actually had it to where she quizzes them on stuff that she knows, yeah. and and they're so lost, you know. <laughs> yeah, and this was way before all that. So I I did a spec where she she tested into Mensa, and everybody was shocked. Like, no, but most of us are no, we're not shocked. She's really smart, but because those characters are drawn so well. You know exactly how all of them are going to react because oh, you yeah. know what their securities are, what their idiosyncrasies are. So that's your job as a writer or a content creator is to create these characters that just, you know, are rock solid and then create a structure and a, and a dramatic uh, conflict rich arena and set them in the right backdrop so that if you have a breakout star or if you lose someone or if you need to break it into 10 episodes or if you need to compress it all into one, that all holds together. And these are puzzle pieces that can be uh, manipulated in such a way that it still gives pleasure and it, it either delights and entertains and makes people laugh or makes them scared. But you're driving home all these wonderful things with this palette that you've created. Yeah. Awesome. So if we have just a couple more minutes, if it's okay, I do have one last question before we wrap up. Because we've covered this package, right? And I know what people are thinking, like, well, I got my package now. What do I do? Oh, yeah. What would be that step to, like, you know, figure out, you know, who do I pitch this to? What yeah. How do you get there? Yeah. Well, um, that's what both books are about. But basically, <laughs> the story selling, you know, the subtitle is develop mar how to develop, market, and pitch your film and TV projects. And the other one the how to work the film and TV markets, a guide for content creators. They're both the same sort of things. One is working the market floors and working market events like the AFM and AFM. And then the other is creating the marketing materials. And I kind of think of it as an affinity loop, right? Cause the minute when you're developing and then you're writing and then you're figuring out how to market, you might realize, wow, I really missed the boat over here. I'm going to go back and rewrite this. And then you begin to develop the key art and you're like oh wow we really missed an opportunity over here so one it's like three legs it's like a three-legged stool and each part of that process informs the other and it's not like uh you know you have to build this one up because when you make one of them better the other two have to raise their game you have to keep making it all as good as possible so one of the things i mentioned was when you do your comp list you can reverse engineer your prospect list. It becomes very clear who your buyers are, who your possible distributors, financiers, and investors might be. If you're doing, um, if going after equity investors, that's a different strategy than if you're going after institutional investors or distributors who are platforms that, you know, the studios are big distribution machines and marketing machines who, of course, have very deep pockets, but they're only going to, pick up something that they think they can market. So normally that's going to have to be a bestseller 
or have someone famous attached. So if you don't have a bestseller and you don't have an A-list or a very marquee name attached, there's going to be other avenues you're going to have to go. Netflix, what's fascinating about them is they can tell you who's like, you can't go to Netflix with a cast wish list because they already know who all of their demographics and psychographics, what the people are watching. They know better than anyone. So you're better served to say this is the type of character and let them tell you who they're willing to fund, right? So what you're looking for there, it, it's like it's the age old uh, Hollywood is, is where's your point of entry? And that this landscape is changing constantly. So one of the things I do as a consultant is help people like, is your intention to produce this and direct this as a $200,000 feature film or a $1.2 million feature film? All right, here's how we're going to figure out who in your sphere of influence or within your overlapping social media spheres of influence, how are we going to get the 1.2 million equity or 50% equity and tax incentives and other things to cobble together enough money to pull this off at the 200K to $1.2 million budget? Or are you doing a $5 million to $30 million project? And who are the right partners to go after with that for a co-pro? And there's some, some really good strategies. One is just as you make your comp list, and I encourage you, even if you're doing a TV show, make the comps of film. Even if you're doing a film, make the comps that are TV. Because even though it might not be a procedural, it might be in that same milieu. It might be the same world. It might be the same types of characters. And again, you're going to find crossover talent. You may find that you have a list of 10 comps and seven of them have the same DP. Well, maybe that DP wants to direct and you could be his directorial debut and you could pitch to him and say, look, 70% of my comps, you DP'd, you have the right sensibility. You have the, here's one of the things I say when I pitch to people is I'll say, like, let's say there's three projects that the person you're pitching to has done. You could say, I'm a big fan of yours because, you know, three of your movies are three of my favorites. And as a matter of fact, they're relevant to this project. Comp number A or comp A, it has the same time period and sensibility and the melancholy mood of comp A, but it has the gritty, edgy, irreverent characters of B, but actually it has the themes of C. And that's why I think, you know what I mean? You gotta come up, going back to journalism 101, the five W's, who, what, where, when, why, why them, why you, why now, why this project, why not, you know, what happens is people, pitch stuff and they think that they can lamb blast 4,000 emails out and all you're doing is wasting pixels like you're just getting stuff thrown into junk mail spam whatever and even if you got through to someone when they open it up if they read some form letter that's never going to fly like I I had a company for a while uh, StoryWorks Entertainment and we used to call ourselves Sexy Disney <laughs> And that's what we wanted to do. I wanted to do something I wouldn't be embarrassed for my mom to see, but that a grandma could take her grandkid to see and they could have a fun uh, day out. But mom and dad could go to it as a date night movie too. And there would be different layers of a four quadrant entertainment you know, opportunity there. So someone pitched to me in the subject line of the email, I have a sexy Disney comedy. 
Well, of course I'm going to open that, right? Mm -hmm. So do your research, do your due diligence, find out what they like, what they're looking for. I have this monstrous, I've, I've been in the business 20 years and I track everybody and everything. So I know who used to work where, what they worked on, but there, what they, what I've read about. Like anytime I read something in the trades, I'll copy and paste it and put it in my database. I keep really good records. So I know even if that person is working at, you know, some sci-fi channel, sci-fi, I had a deal with NBC for four years and they have the sci-fi channel and Bravo and USA. So I really understood the NBC universal world as they, cause they were merging um, when Comcast acquired them. So I paid a lot of attention to that. And as the different channels changed their brands and their mandates, so I keep, I have, I have lists of all the mandates of all the channels and what everybody's looking for. And then that changes, but the legacy doesn't change because what they've all been trying to target, you know, they might move by a degree or two, but they still have that provenance of what they're looking to repurpose and stuff. So you're just looking for what are your, I always think of the six, it used to be the big six, now it's big five. What are the big five studios and then the mini majors and what are your points of entry? And on my uh, Dropbox, I have the facts on packs, which you can also Google, Variety does it. And they tell you everybody who has a deal with one of the studios, with one of the financiers, investors, or distributors. And then you can figure out if you're going after, you know, Justin Baldoni, who was in Jane the Virgin, if you're going after him, he has his own company. So who does his company have a deal with? So if you're trying to get a project, let's say you have a big animated feature and you think it could be the next big global hit, probably that's going to be Disney or Netflix, right? Mm -hmm. So who has a deal with Disney? Who has a deal with Netflix? Of the people who have those deals, the Disney people, there might be lots of people who do live action or romance. None of that's relevant to you. What's relevant to you is who's doing the young adult children programming, or if it's a four quadrant, who's doing four quadrant stuff, who's doing animation stuff, same thing over on Netflix. And then look and see who do you have, you know, low hanging fruit. Do you have a friend of a friend who might've been a cinematographer who might know someone who worked on that Pixar project? And can you get anything to anyone who might be in a position to help you? Because it takes a village. Helps having connections. You have to yeah. have uh, the same kind of intelligence that Penny has <laughs> to get it to work. It doesn't matter yeah. what other intelligence you have. If you don't know people, you're not going to get it through. Absolutely. And to your point, Marks, if you have to have connections, but you, you have to create them too. Mm -hmm. Like nobody started in this business. I mean, I'm sure some people did with nepotism and luck, but you know, I didn't know anybody when I started in this business and now I know thousands and I hustle and I, you know, anybody starting, like I was mentoring, I, I mentor a lot of people and I was mentoring some the other night and I literally was like, no offense to her, but she had literally done nothing, nothing. She, How do I get a job? It's not like you're going to graduate and they're going to give you a job. Like who's going to give you, like, who is that entity? I'd like to know who they are. <laughs> they don't exist. And I literally spent like 10 minutes with her and gave her referral after referral, after group, after organization, after website, like just get out there. You have to be willing something. to be a receptionist, for instance. Yeah. yeah. But my dad used to say, get in the activity. 
-hmm. Just get in the activity because when you're out there pounding the pavement, you know, beating the bushes, all those cliches, you are going to meet people. Like here's, here's a perfect example. My boyfriend does a variety of things, but he's been learning to 3D print and he has, he has literally built a 3D printer out of spare parts. Oh, like nice. he's brilliant. He is building simulators, like motorcycle simulators, race simulators, uh, helicopters. And he's like figuring it out for himself, just figuring out how to get the, he's like building it out of PVC pipes. Uh, he puts the images on the computer screen, figures out some music. He gets whatever the butt pump, it hits you in the butt so you feel like you're hitting road bumps. <laughs> it tilts and moves. And then he's been doing, um, he's been 3D printing handles for Beat Saber, which is a real popular VR game. So somebody bought one of the Beat Saber handles from him and somebody else uh, bought some Vive or uh, 3D printing or VR stuff, I don't know, from them. Well, it turns out those two guys work at the same place. Oh. And one was buying it off like Facebook Marketplace, another guy was buying it off eBay and then they found out that he had this simulator and their boss was looking for someone to build simulators. And it's, and my boyfriend said, Oh, it's like so lucky or suck. It's, it's not luck. <laughs> that is you hustling to learn what you're passionate about, figuring it out, getting out there, marketing it because just by marketing it and selling it on eBay or Facebook marketplace, he is tapping into those who have that shared passion, that right. shared interest. And that synchronicity is his hustle. Mm -hmm. And that's how he's finding his tribe. Yeah. Right. And that's what we all have to do. So it doesn't matter if it's coal mining in Kentucky or Egypt or gold rush or sci-fi, you need to find your tribe and you, and the, you're better able to do that the more specific you are about what your content is and, and of course, execute it brilliantly. Like that's at the end of the day, right. what matters. Cause it's hard to make a din out there in this marketplace. Yeah. Wasn't that one actor, he, he started working out in the mailroom, right? From, was it prison break? Is he the same one that went on to legends and tons of them? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. He, he, yeah. He started out working in the mailroom at this place and then, you know, he showed up for an audition and they're like, don't we know you? He's like, yeah, I deliver your mail. You know? Yeah. And, and it was, they already knew his face and, and they could find out, Hey, this guy, you know, he shows up on time for work, does his job, you know, yeah. easy to get yeah. along with, you know? I mean? People can help you or know your talent unless you present Yeah. It and you know, they're like, Hey, he, he was over at the coffee machine. He helped me with the toner once, you know, I mean, but it's, it's getting to know people. I directed a proof of concept pilot that I wrote and produced and directed. I won't name any names, but we had, uh, I can try to think how to say it delicately, but anyway, we had a, an actress who, uh, was a nightmare mm -hmm. and there was another girl who came on board just to help us out. She was just a friend of a friend and she like helped with craft services and then she ran over here and did something for wardrobe. I don't remember what she did if she ran to a dry cleaners or sewed something and she was just helping. She was just literally on just there helping and she was delightful and she was charming. And when this other diva was such a nightmare, I fired her and I put that, gave the girl the lead role. <laughs> Good for like, you. On the 
fought because I was like, life is too short for this nonsense. Right. She was the attitude. She, she, and it was actually, it was a, it was a blonde gal and the other gal was black. I gave the black gal, I said, get in there. Everyone's like, what? Like, yeah, she fits just the same. What, what size are you? Get in there. <laughs> you know, and that's what happens because like, you know, life is short. Well, people forget it's short. a, it's a workplace. You yeah. people need to know that you're going to, you're going to show up when you're supposed to show up. Yep. You're going to be prepared. You're yep. going to do your job. You're going to do it well. You're not going to make life difficult for other people. Play nice with other people. Be I'm, a human it, being. It's yeah. a place of work. And it's not just yeah. a place of work. A set is where you're working 12, 14, 16 hours at work. It's a place so, of it's family. Yeah, yeah. So you're literally spending more time with these people than you do with your own family when you're totally. filming. You yeah. cannot, if, if people cringe when you walk by Word's going to get out. People just don't want to work with people like that. That's just human nature. Yeah. Yeah. And that's human nature get... is you just yeah. don't want to deal with those people. <laughs> Especially when, you know, those are stressful situations. Everybody's tired. Everybody's yeah. exhausted. Nobody has time. Like, it's kind of fascinating. So producing this TV show virtually. So I'm producing a TV show in Los Angeles while being an MFA student in Savannah. <laughs> and they're all lovely, wonderful people. But... It was fascinating to be here watching it through Zoom because it felt like it was a TV show that I used to be a character in, (laughs) right? And so now I'm watching all the personalities and all the inner dynamics and what's happening between everyone. And you could see whose insecurity was flaring up and who maybe I used to think was being callous and short, but was just getting this job done, just yeah. Yeah, work focused on audio, focused on tech. So it's really fascinating to see that uh, sort of isolated and distilled when you are disassociated from it, yeah. but you're still a part of it. Because I could just hit a, it's not like on a normal TV show, you can hit a microphone button and unmute yourself and contribute. So it's a surreal, like what we're going through now with COVID is just a weird thing. (laughs) Well, uh, thank you, Heather Hale, for coming and talking with us. And we've got a lot of really good information and we can't wait to maybe pick your brain another time. (laughs) Yeah, we could talk to you for hours. Maybe we'll have you back on sometime soon. Yeah. Oh, it it was my pleasure. I could talk to you guys for hours too. So hopefully your viewers or your listeners got something out of it and we didn't just gab away and bore them to tears. <laughs> well, can you also please let all of our listeners know where they can find you and any of your, your books or any of your other work where they can find you online to. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm Heather Hale. And so my email is heatherhale.com. So that's H-E-A-T-H-E-R-H-A-L-E.com. And on the website, it has books. And on the books page, there's story selling and there's how to work the film and TV markets. And both of them have a ton of free resources. I think there's another page that says resources And then in there under story selling is Dropbox. I guarantee you, I mean, I've had people tell me like you could spend a year lost in that content and it's all free and people email me all the time and I totally help. I've hopped on Zoom with people. I've hopped on the phone. I like, I'm happy to help. 
you know, like a 15 minute call. I don't want to be taken advantage of and used and abused because I'm a wimp when, it, you know, learning boundaries. So <laughs> I, um, but I am a consultant as well. So I absolutely will happily do a deep dive, read screenplays. I do script analysis. I do budgets and schedules, but I would love to direct anything. That's what I'm trying to move into. And script soup, like any, any way I can help a content creator create their content. I'm like, let me know how I could help. I'm here. That's what I'm doing. My name is Linda Sager. I've been a script consultant. I'm an author of 10 books on screenwriting. Our newest is You're Talking to Me, How to Write Great Dialogue. And you're listening to Genretainment. Well, thanks again for being on the show, Heather. Check out the show notes for links to her website and to the Dropbox folders where you can find the Stranger Things pitch package, plus other pitch packages, series Bibles, a whole sorts of great stuff. A lot more. Uh, and don't forget, you can find John Entertainment on Spotify, Stitcher, or likely any of your favorite podcast players out there. You can also find archived episodes at genretainment.com and markspile.com. Before we go, we want to give a shout out to the full band duo McCarty, who created the music for the show. You can find links to their YouTube channel in the show notes. Well, that's it for today's Genretainment. Until, Until next, next time. time. Bad monkey.